You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Everybody have a good week? End of the month, 28.7 million in gross commissions, all from pink sheet stock, boys! There's the financing of the film The Wolf of Wall Street, the $200 million super yacht, the purchase of paintings by Monet, Van Gogh, and Basquiat, $8 million in jewelry, extravagant parties, all from the billions of dollars bankers allegedly looted from the Malaysian fund known as 1MDB, an international embarrassment for Goldman Sachs. And now trial begins for the only person in all of Goldman Sachs to stand trial in the U.S. for the scandal. Former banker Roger Ng, charged with helping to launder billions of dollars embezzled from the fund and bribery. Joining me is Jonathan Macy, a professor at Yale Law School. Jonathan, tell us about the broad outlines of the scandal. This is one of the largest scandals in history where Goldman banker Tim Leisner and Malaysian financier Joe Lowe basically diverted $4.5 billion from a fund called the 1MDB Fund to pay for a very lavish lifestyle and to buy yachts and private jets and jewelry and fund the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Basically, the idea is Goldman sold securities and these proceeds from the securities were supposed to be used to build infrastructure and benefit the Malaysian people, but it was really just a massive ripoff. Goldman has paid $5 billion in fines and apologized for breaking the law. How much of a black mark was that for the investment bank? Well, it was a black mark, but, you know, Goldman already has a reputation for being pretty edgy when it comes to ethical issues, and its clients seem to stick with it. So they're kind of the Teflon bank. They can do seemingly virtually anything as far as 
being involved in scandals and ripoffs without experiencing any reputational consequence. So how did it end up that Ng is the only Goldman employee to face trial for this? That's a great question. There is a Goldman partner who was Ng's boss, a guy named Tim Leisner, and he has pled guilty to money laundering, paying bribes, and circumventing Goldman's internal control system, and is cooperating with the government, and they've held off his sentencing till after he testifies in this trial. Basically, Goldman's lawyers have succeeded in sort of cabining this scandal to Malaysia. Prosecutors have emails and online chats indicating Ng's involvement, as well as financial records. What's his likely defense here? I think the core of his defense was that he was involved in helping on the deal, but he didn't know about any of the shenanigans. He didn't know about any of the diversion of funds that occurred later. It's going to be the core of his defense. You know, what Ng is going to say is that he warned Goldman and that he came back to the United States to face trial as opposed to Lowe's decision to flee. A lot of this will come down to how credible Leisner is and what sort of holes the defense can poke into Leisner's testimony. I think his testimony will be the most important part of the trial. And do we expect to see the typical attack on a witness who's flipped that Leisner is implicating Ng to save himself? Absolutely. Mr. Ng's lawyers made it very clear that that's what they plan to allege, that he's trying to get a lighter sentence. Leisner's sentencing has been delayed until after his testimony. It sounds like your classic prosecutorial quid pro quo. You would think that he would take a deal as well as Leisner. Well, the problem is I think Leisner had a card to play, which was testifying against Ng. It's not clear that Ng has a card to play. So he may not have been able to command the same sort of deal. It's also when you have two high-profile defendants like this, Leisner and Ng, it's often a kind of a race who, you know, cooperates first. It looks like Leisner beat him to it. The jury's going to hear about all this extravagant spending, but might there be some sympathy for Ng as sort of the scapegoat, the only Goldman employee to be tried? I don't think that juries have a lot of sympathy for investment bankers. So to the extent that he was involved in conspicuous consumption and the prosecution could draw that out, I think that will hurt him with the jury. I think there will be a question raised as to why is Ng the only person on trial? That will be a question that naturally will come up with the jury, but it doesn't get him off the hook. But the amount of time involved here, if he faces as much as 30 years in prison, that seems like a murder sentence. Right. Well, it's attributable to the very large amounts of money involved. And when you're talking about fraud in the billions, the misappropriation of $2.7 billion from one MDB, then you get you know into pretty long prison sentences. And then after this, he is likely to be extradited back to Malaysia for another trial. Thanks, John. That's Jonathan Macy of Yale Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. 
they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Vote dilution occurs when an electoral practice minimizes or cancels out the voting strength of members of a racial group or language minority group. When we issued that guidance, I noted that discriminatory redistricting schemes are illegal. Attorney General Merrick Garland explained why vote dilution is illegal under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But a divided Supreme Court ignored that definition. By a vote of 5 to 4, the court reinstated an Alabama congressional map that a panel of judges found diluted the votes of blacks in violation of Section 2. Joining me is Rebecca Green, a professor and co-director of the election law program at William & Mary Law School. I've seen a lot of headlines that say in one form or another that this is a blow to minority voting rights. Do you agree? And if so, how much of a blow? Well, if you believe in the protections the Voting Rights Act is supposed to afford minority voters in redistricting cases, then this is certainly a blow because the map that the state of Alabama drew is sort of textbook vote dilution. In other words, it packs minority voters in one district and it cracks a group of minority voters in half to dilute their strength. So it's, it's sort of textbook packing and cracking. Um, and to the extent that the court's order means that the maps will go forward with those diluted districts, then that certainly will be harmful irreparably to minority voters in Alabama. And just go back for a moment and explain what the lower court panel, which consisted of three judges, one appointed by former President Clinton and two appointed by former President Trump, what they found. So 
Section 2 cases in the vote dilution context require a three-part test. First, the court has to examine whether or not the minority voters are sufficiently large and compact to warrant their own district, a majority-minority district. Then the next two parts of the test look at racially polarized voting, so whether or not, for example, majority voters vote against minority voters' candidates of choice or whether the minority community itself is politically cohesive. And on all three measures, the lower court unanimously found that those tests were met, meaning that the legislature had diluted minority votes improperly, at least in violation of of Section 2. And that's why they ordered a second minority district be drawn. Chief Justice John Roberts was in the forefront as the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case. What does it tell you that he joined with the liberals here in support of having a new map drawn in Alabama? Well, Chief Justice Roberts has long been skeptical of Voting Rights Act Section 2 jurisprudence, but the legal test or sort of the processes set up by the Voting Rights Act in those two different sections are extremely different. So your ruling in one case in Section 5 in Shelby County in 2013 just doesn't map onto this section because the law is just very different. So, so it's hard to sort of make connections other than to say, you know, that certainly Justice Roberts has been skeptical of the Voting Rights Act sort of writ large, obviously, for a very long time. But what's interesting about this case is that the law as it exists today is very clear. And that's probably why you had a unanimous opinion below, because like I said, this is sort of a textbook violation of Section 2, at least as far as the court has been concerned up until now. There's no opinion for the majority, but in a concurring opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Samuel Alito, said that this decision was necessary because the lower court had acted too soon before a coming election. Do you buy that reasoning? Well, it's certainly a novel claim. I mean, the Purcell principle, as it's known, is this idea that federal courts shouldn't make changes right before an election because it would confuse voters and it would make it difficult for the election officials to administer the election. But neither of those issues are present here where we're months and months away from an election and where remedial maps could be drawn, you know, basically with the snap of a finger. So it's hard to square that argument. And it's certainly a very big extension of the principle to say, you know, months out, a federal court can't mess with the state's plan. And I think what's especially worrisome about it is maybe it's going to mean that line drawers drag their feet to pass maps because if they can get it within, you know, many months out from the primary election, then maybe they can win on the Purcell principle, which just is a very bad set of incentives to set up. In her dissent, Justice Kagan faulted the majority for using what's called the shadow docket, basically emergency orders, to usher in a major legal shift. And Justice Kavanaugh responded by saying Kagan was using catchy but worn-out rhetoric. Was there some tension there? I think clearly there's been a lot of concern about how much activity is happening at the court in these emergency orders where, you know, there isn't argument, there isn't reason opinion, there's sort of a lot of action happening in this sort of extraordinary way where it's this emergency docket as opposed to your typical Supreme Court case. And so I think there's tension between members of the court who think that that's just the order of the day and that's how the Supreme Court functions versus those that see an uptick in the number of these kinds of 
rulings and some concerns since there's no reasoning and no opportunity for argument and, and so forth. Alabama's argument here was that it shouldn't have to elevate race over traditional redistricting criteria. Does this decision indicate that the court's conservative majority may be open to weakening the role race plays in drawing voting districts? I have a very short answer, which is yes. Tell us why you said yes. What's extraordinary about this is that in 2013, when the court struck Section 5, It said, you know, don't worry, we have Section 2 still here to protect minority voters. And then now you have the court kind of coming in and saying, oh, you know, if states prioritize race, this isn't what they've held, of course, because the case hasn't been heard on the merits. But the implication is that if a state prioritizes minority voters, protecting minority voters, that they're somehow violating the Constitution would, would effectively render Section 2 unconstitutional. That is, you simply can't protect minority voters under Section 2 because doing so is somehow prioritizing race unconstitutionally. So it's a pretty surprising idea because for a long time, the court has given Congress authority to enforce minority voting rights under the 15th Amendment. And so this would essentially be taking away Congress's power, at least to do what it did in Section 2. The attorney general is challenging Texas's voting maps. How does this decision play in that case? Well, any time that a plaintiff is challenging 2020 maps, trying to assert a Section 2 claim, their ears are going to be perking up here uh, in terms of the court's probable thinking on Section 2 compliance. So I think if you're a voting rights attorney hoping to use Section 2 to challenge a map, you know, you're shaking in your boots. Thanks, Rebecca. That's Rebecca Green of William & Mary Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.